Chapter Twenty Three of Order Number Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Order Number Eleven by Caroline Abbott Stanley. Chapter Twenty Three: A Day of Sewing. The warning threw them into the utmost consternation. What should they hide? Where would they hide it? Messengers were dispatched to different places to give the alarm. To Mr. Swamscott's, Mr. Pascoe's, Miss Martha Robnett's, all of whom had sons or brothers in the Southern Army, and to a number of others who had taken no part in the war, but were known to be Southern sympathizers. Virginia got on Rob Roy and rode over to Dr. Lay's. There was not much probability of the Jayhawkers molesting them, Colonel Trevilian thought, but it would do no harm to put them on their guard. Miss Nanny herself went over to Miss Tiny's. There was never any telling how they would take things, she said. Their attitude verified the assertion. Miss Tiny, who was the leading spirit, simply stood up in the middle of the floor and declared that they would not turn over a hand. When her position was defined, Miss Tony supported it. Were they receivers of stolen goods, she demanded, that they must put things into hiding? Certainly not. If these cutthroats and thieves chose to rob and kill, let them do it. If they had to be overrun by an abolitionized North, life was not worth much anyway. No, she should hide nothing. But, Miss Tiny, urged Miss Nanny, they probably won't kill you, and they will take your silver. You don't want to eat with pewter spoons just because we are in the hands of the abolitionized North, do you? I shall hide nothing, said Miss Tiny, firmly. It would be undignified and unworthy a Virginian to concede in such a manner any possible control they might have over my property. I hope I am not so lost to what, to what— She never finished it. She was accustomed to ask herself in any unexpected emergency, What would they do in my native state? or to say promptly in any known case, they never do so in Virginia. Today the props were all knocked from under her. She was without precedent. Miss Tiny, Miss Nanny said, desperately, if you won't do that, there is only one other thing to do. Brother William says to tell you you must put yourself under the protection of your brother in the Federal Army. He says to show them the letter you received from your brother Jeems telling of his determination to stand by the Union and tell them that if they harm you in any way, they will have to answer for it to a United States officer. He thinks that even the Jayhawkers will not dare to molest the sisters of General Bascom. At the beginning of this message, Miss Tony had glanced with startled apprehension at her sister. That name had never been spoken, even between themselves, since the day the letter came. But a surging hope rose in her heart. This would be such a reasonable way of escape from the danger that threatened them. She waited, breathless, for her sister's reply. Miss Tiny did not falter. She was as white as she would be when she was dead, but the hard lines around the mouth did not soften. She looked straight into the eyes of her visitor. We have no brother, she said. Miss Tony fell back in her chair, and Miss Nanny went home in a rage. They deserve to lose everything they have, she told her brother. At Dr. Lay's, Virginia heard news that put the Jayhawkers out of her mind. Gordon had been ordered south. 
he was coming down the next night to say goodbye. What had taken place under the honeysuckle was a sweet secret between these two. They had never confided it to a soul. Engagements were not made public then as now. But Mrs. Lay put her arms tenderly around Virginia when she went away and drew her to her heart. Perhaps she guessed. There was a scurrying around on Grand Prairie that day. At Keswick they hid the silver and the little money they still had, and Colonel Trevilian's best suit, and Beverly's that he had left. It did not occur to them to hide women's clothing, which was unfortunate. Over the parlor was a dark garret, entered from the hall bedroom. Such valuables as they could collect were thrust in here, the door was papered over, a bed put up against it, and they felt reasonably secure. There was not much sleep at Keswick that night, nor elsewhere on Grand Prairie. In the morning the Philistines were upon them. The Trevilians really had very little idea what they were to expect, but they supposed, in the simplicity of their souls, that this was an army on its way somewhere, and that Jennison would be at its head. As they watched the soldiers coming up the road, their bayonets glittering in the morning sun, they were surprised to see how few there were, only eight. This must be just the advance guard, said Miss Nanny. But in a moment, some government wagons rolled into view. Empty ones, as they found out later. And no more soldiers appeared. Can that be Jennison? asked Miss Nanny, as she and her niece peered through the Venetian blinds. The one at the head, I mean. Why, haven't I seen that man somewhere? Virginia was thinking, with a sudden sinking of her heart, that she had seen the one behind him. They had no time, however, for further investigation, for the squad had now passed beyond the range of their vision. "'Aunt Nan,' said Virginia, "'I believe in my soul that is—' The sentence was unfinished, for at that moment there was a resounding, imperious knock at the door with the butt-end of a rifle. Colonel Trevilian went to the door, and the three women crowded around him. Thus, when the door was opened, it happened that the whole family confronted— Mr. Tigerman. And what could be worse to confront in such a moment than a small vindictive soul, nursing a fancied grievance, and clothed with a little brief authority? "'Good morning, Tigerman,' said the Colonel, as though he had met him yesterday. The man swelled up like a frog. His day had come now. "'Lieutenant Tigerman, if you please, when you speak to me,' he said brusquely. "'Ah, Lieutenant Tigerman,' And what can I do for you, sir? I want your arms, and that pretty quick. He ignored the ladies with fine disdain, remembering a time when one of them had ignored him. Come, I don't want any of your palaver. We have no arms, said Colonel Trevilian. They were all taken from us at the beginning of the war by Colonel Jennison's orders, as you must know. Virginia had been scanning the faces behind the lieutenant. There were but six of them. The one she was looking for was not there. Tigerman pushed past the group in the hall and strode into Mrs. Trevilian's room on the left. How often he had longed to enter that house and hold familiar converse with its inmates. Well, the time had come at last. Unlock that drawer, he commanded, pointing to a mahogany bureau, and don't give me any more of your damned impertinence. There were seven armed men against him and Colonel Trevilian unlocked the drawer. 
while Tigerman was going through the bureau, and a soldier standing guard. The other men were scattering through the house. When this raid into Jackson County was planned, Tigerman had boasted with an oath that he would gut Keswick. The rest might go where they pleased, but he would have that for his share. And he had called for volunteers to assist. The men understood their privileges and availed themselves of them. Finding that it was plunder and not blood they were after, Colonel Trevilian left them and hurried down to his stables, and the three helpless women stood by and watched the ravaging of their home. Upon the pretext of looking for concealed weapons, wardrobes were rummaged and drawers ransacked. Trunks were emptied on the floor to make room for such things as they wanted to carry away. Silk dresses, furs, jewelry, table linen, all was grist that came to their mill. Two of the men spying around went into the hall bedroom. "'Seems to me that's a queer place for a bed,' said one, looking around with a practiced eye. They whirled it aside, and the patch of new paper told its story. They did not even have the trouble of hunting up the Trevilian valuables. They were collected ready for them. Miss Nanny stood by, speechless with rage. When they took her pearls, her beautiful necklace and brooch and pendant earrings that were to be Virginia's on her wedding day, her voice returned. "'You are brave soldiers,' she cried, maddened past all sense of fear. "'Is this the way you fight your country's battles, filching jewelry from bureau drawers?' The man laughed lightly. "'You are a rebel, aren't you?' "'Yes, I'm a rebel, to the backbone. If I had ever been Union, I wouldn't own it now.' "'Nan!' But Miss Nanny was past stopping, even by that soft voice. "'Well, I guess we have a right to confiscate rebel goods,' said the man, holding up an ashes of roses silk and then laying it in the trunk. "'Do you know what Florence Nightingale said?' demanded Miss Nanny. "'I believe I haven't the honor of Florence's acquaintance. What did she say?' "'She said, "'Governments confiscate. Soldiers steal.' Mrs. Trevilian caught her by the arm and shook her. "'Nan, these men will shoot you.' "'Sister Betty, I don't care if they do. I will say what I think of it. It's infamous.' "'Go ahead,' said the man, good-humoredly. "'It does you good, and it don't hurt us.' In another room, Virginia was pleading for her joie jacket and dry tete gaiters. It was no use. Ahab coveted the garden, even to the snowdrops and the lilies of the valley. The government wagons were driven close to the door. Into them went household goods of every description—beds, mattresses, furniture, silk quilts, rose blankets, even heirlooms and family portraits. Mrs. Trevilian begged for the portraits, but Lieutenant Tigerman had a taste for the beautiful, if not for the good and the true, and family portraits are scarce in a new country. Colonel Trevilian's best suit had been thrust hastily into Logan's box, in the hope that the Negro's belongings would not be searched. Vain hope! A tall soldier drew them out with gloating eyes. "'For de Lord's sake, master,' said the Negro, "'don't take my breeches. Dem's de ones are going to be married in.' The man took a look at the long legs in his grasp, and then at the squat figure of the darky. "'You're lying,' he said. "'By the length of them, they belong to that long-legged old rebel in the house.' 
Virginia kept close to her father that day. She soon left the house to her mother and Miss Nanny. Locking her arm in his, she went with him as he tried to save his stock. While the others were at work in the house the day before, he had been busy outside. Rex, his blooded bull, had been taken down into the brush and corralled. The more valuable animals of other kinds were disposed of in like manner. They might have saved themselves the trouble. When the men came, they called for Rex by name. His fame had gone abroad, and they had come for him. It was when they were getting Rex that Virginia came face to face with Emmons Baird. He half spoke, being taken at a disadvantage, for he had not expected to see her here. She only looked him over with scornful eyes. It was he that she had seen then. She thought so. Her look angered him, as her words had once before. "'I've come back,' he said insolently, "'to keep company with you.' "'I see,' she said quietly. "'You went away like a thief in the night, "'and you've come back like a thief in the daytime. "'I suppose you can't help it.' Colonel Trevilian stood by, as many another man on Grand Prairie did that day, utterly powerless, as his choice herd was driven off. He would not beg. It would have done no good if he had. They needed stock. Of all the people on that place, and all the things they had set out to do, only Mammy was successful in holding her position. She had undertaken to save the meat. They had fed soldiers before, and Mammy was tired of it. Moreover, there was the constant fear that the meat might some day be carted off. She set her wits to work to devise a plan whereby this might be prevented, and Mammy's wits were not to be despised. Somehow and somewhere she had got hold of a spoiled ham. She kept it in a box, ready for the emergency. That day one of Lieutenant Tigerman's soldiers came to the kitchen door and ordered dinner for twelve men. Of course, teamsters have to be fed as well as men that bear arms for their country. Mammy had seen the lieutenant looking into the smokehouse, and she recognized the fact that the emergency had come. She drew forth the ham and a turkey wing, talking volubly as she did so to prevent the man's getting away. She made savage passes at the meat, but did not cut into it. "'Hurry up, old woman. We can't stay here all day.' Mammy flirted the wing higher and higher. "'Yes, sir, Mars Colonel. I's hurrying all I kin.' I just brush any skippers off to see em meet. They awful si vigorous skippers is, but I'll get em out directly. Look here, Mars Colonel. The man came close and surveyed the meat. Ugh, throw that to the hogs. Haven't you got anything else? Nothing but middlin', said Mammy, regretfully. We all got some monstrous good fat middlin'. Look like de skippers don't care so much for de side meat. Neither do we. Uncle Sam gives us enough sow belly. Haven't you got any chickens? Nary a chicken, said Mammy, glancing down toward the pasture as she spoke, in mortal terror lest the recreant fowls that she had been at pains to tie in a thicket should have escaped and taken this inopportune time for a stroll. Just then Lieutenant Tigerman came around the house. I don't know, but we'd better go on to the next place for dinner, Lieutenant. Look at this meat. Lieutenant Tigerman took one look and then stepped to the smokehouse door. 
A goodly array of hams hung from the joists. "'Are they all like that?' he asked. He was intending to fill in vacant spots with hams. "'Yes, yeah, sir, dis just a fair sample, I reckon,' said Mammy, respectfully. "'We all had monstrous bad luck with the meat dis year.' It is likely that if Colonel Trevilian had heard her, he would have upset the whole successful venture. He would rather have lost his hams than his reputation for curing them. That is, he would in sixty-two. The men turned away. Lieutenant Tigerman spoke a word to the soldier ready with the ladder, and Mammy put the ham back in the box with a chuckle. "'You done mighty well that time, old sow-leg. I go and try you and de skippers again.' And she did. When that cavalcade crossed the boundary between the two states, it looked like the train of some barbaric conqueror. All it lacked was the captives in chains. It stretched out miles and miles in length. Herds of cattle, flocks of sheep, droves of swine. Blooded stock was rare in Kansas then. Many a man got his start that day. Behind them was despair. The next day Lieutenant Tigerman drove a government wagon into his private yard in the outskirts of Lawrence. Mrs. Tigerman came out to assist in the unloading. "'My land,' she said admiringly, "'ain't that a mattress worth having? There must be forty pounds of hair in it.' Mrs. Tigerman had usually lain on shucks. "'I bet they hated to see that go.' Mr. Tigerman set down his end of a heavy pier glass that had been the pride of Keswick and the country round. As he looked at it now, even he had his doubts about its feeling at home on his wife's rag carpet. But then, there might be other trips and other carpets. He took off his coat, his beautiful coat of blue, with the lieutenant's straps, and wiped his brow. "'I tell you,' he said firmly, "'this union's got to be preserved, no matter what it costs. There ain't any sacrifices we can make that is too great.' "'That there ain't,' asseverated his wife, fervently, shaking out the folds of Miss Nanny Trevilian's lavender silk. "'I'm nothing but a poor, weak woman, and it ain't much I can do, but I'm going to stand by the government to the last. Did you get any spoons?' End of chapter 23 Recording by Brian Keenan